Good morning, Grace. Well, we are a solid week away from Christmas. Don't panic, a week and a day, really. Uh, and I want to set aside this time we have together this morning to do some thinking in advance about the amazing thing we celebrate at Christmas. So just like you have to get people presents in advance and arrange to invite them over in advance and then make a meal plan in advance, I think it makes sense to do some of your thinking and pondering and meditating in advance. Shop early, send out invitations early, and uh, theologize early. So when the big day comes, you don't get caught by surprise and find yourself wondering all of a sudden on Christmas morning, hey, what child is this anyway? Right? Instead, we're spending several weeks here setting our hearts to study the Word of God to consider what child is this. And this morning, we're going to pick up what we believe that the Word became flesh, John 1.14, and think a little bit more deeply about it. This is familiar ground that believers in Jesus all have in common. The Word became flesh. But we're going to dig in more. Our text is short, John 1.14. You can turn to it if you'd like. The Word became flesh. All the answers are right there in John 1.14. The Word became flesh. What child is this? Answer, the Word made flesh. That's who this child is. The Word became flesh. So, the sermon has three points. Point one, the Word. Point two, flesh. And point three, became. That's it. It might seem a little bit out of order there at the end, but it's actually the order the words go in in the underlying Greek. Word, flesh, became. You could say that in Greek, I guess. And it's also the most helpful order for thinking these great thoughts in sequence. We need to get the divine and the human aspects of it really down well. The nouns, God and man the nouns word and flesh, firmly fixed in our minds. And then we can approach this astonishing verb, became. And then we can take the Lord's Supper, ponder all these things in our hearts for a week or so, and then celebrate Christmas. That's the plan. Okay. But we do need to pray as we jump into that, so please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, help us. Give me clarity and relevance. Give us all a spirit of wisdom and understanding and knowledge of you. Give us listening ears and receptive hearts. Give us the spiritual strength we need to understand together this great thing that is our salvation in your only begotten Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, I read a book one time that I don't especially recommend to you, but the title was fantastic. The book was just okay, kind of overly specialized, a little too jargony, but it had this great title, The Real Word Really Became Real Flesh. I just think that's great. It's so good, I'm kind of swiping it for the sermon because we're starting out with what we believe, the Word became flesh, and then we're digging deeper, making sure we really mean what we say and really know what we believe. The real Word really became real flesh. No cheating, no dodging or hedging or fudging. This is the real stuff. So point one, the real Word. First of all, when Scripture calls Jesus the Word in John 1, it means He's God. If you just look up from our verse in John 1.14 up to the opening lines of John's gospel, in the beginning was, sorry, let me actually get to it here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that's the main character in this story, the Word who was and is God. You can put your finger on that character the Word who was in the beginning with God and who was God, and trace a line down to verse 14, the Word, that Word, 
became flesh. And there you've got the whole miracle, just one little line. Draw it in your Bible if you want. John's Gospel goes on for 21 chapters now to tell you the old familiar Jesus story that we know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, his mission, his miracles, his teaching, his death and resurrection. But more than any other Gospel, John's Gospel starts from above, right? You can't get any more above than in the beginning was the Word. That's the top. It takes you all the way back before creation and all the way up into divinity. And that's where the story of our salvation starts, because only God can save us. It's kind of an axiom for this part. Only God can save us. That's the secret that John knows. Jesus has to be truly God because He saved us, and only God can save us. The one who saved us must be truly and fully God. Why? Well, the kind of salvation that Jesus brings is powerful, personal, and final. So the one who brings it has to be powerful, personal, and final. So sub-points here under the first point. Let's look at those. It has to be powerful. The Savior needs to be competent and authoritative enough to save us. And to save us in a way that nobody else can overrule. If you get saved, you're only saved by the authority, I'm sorry, if you get saved but you're only saved by the authority of some lower power, then you'll never be secure in your salvation. Somebody higher up might come along and revoke it. Unless the gospel comes to us from the highest authority, it's always subject to review and reconsideration. Imagine that you owe a huge tax bill and an IRS agent comes directly to your house and sits down with you in a mandatory kind of way and says, I've reviewed your case and I've decided to cancel this debt. By my authority, I declare your tax bill completely null and void. You are off the hook. This sounds like great good news, but the urgent question immediately becomes, who is this guy? Like, is this agent actually authorized to bring this message? Is he speaking with the highest authority, or is there somebody in some office above him? Because if there's any level of authority higher than his over there at the IRS, I'm not safe yet, and I can't really pop the cork on the champagne bottle. I can't quite celebrate if I'm just going on the credit of this IRS guy who came to my house. I can't be sure and I'm hearing from the highest, I can't be sure until I know that I'm hearing from the highest level of authority. Uh, I'm just freed from my debt pending review. And you know what that, that's like, nobody celebrates or calls friends over to party when something is pending review. Um, so it has to be powerful. That's why it matters that John starts from the top. What child is this? What are the credentials of the one who became flesh and dwelt among us? He is the Word who is God. John 1.18, to those who believed, He gave the right or the authority or the power to become children of God. Who gave that right? The Word who was in the beginning, who was with God and was God. Notice that verse 18 name checks Moses, the mighty Moses himself. Uh, kind of a point for you on biblical theology. We don't talk bad about Moses. Even when we're under the new covenant and it's greater than the covenant uh, overseen by Moses, you don't talk bad about him because we know that you get leprosy if you do that. So, like, so you, don't, you don't just, like, I'm not superstitious, but I'm not going to take risks either. Um, John calls out Moses and says, Moses just isn't just anybody. He speaks for God. But Jesus is higher, stronger, and more authoritative. He speaks for God, but he speaks as God. 
He is the Word of God. So when He gives you the right to become a child of God, you've got the right. Not pending further review, not awaiting endorsement from a higher authority or a greater power. He's got the power and authority to save, and only God can save us. So as the Word, He's powerful, but now let's look at personal. The Word, becomes fle- the word who becomes flesh brings us personal salvation. Not just in the sense that we personally receive it, though that is true, but also in that He personally gives it. Now consider this. What kind of problem do sinners have with God? Well, it's a personal problem for sinners, a problem of sin against the holy God Himself, of rebellion against that highest authority. So follow this argument. If your problem with God is personal, the only one who can resolve it is someone who is God in person. Do you see that? The kind of salvation that we need can't be given by proxy or delegated. It has to be brought by God. It's relational in that sense. Personal forgiveness and reconciliation have to be worked out personally. Now, when I say that, I'm presupposing what kind of salvation we have in the gospel, and I freely admit that if we were talking about some other kind of salvation, God could have sent somebody else to do it, some mere creature to work that out. You know what I mean? Like, let's say the human problem was just that demons were harassing us all the time. I mean, if that were the extent of our problem, the only real problem, the real root problem, the main thing endangering us, God could solve that from a distance. He could just send an angel or an archangel or a host of them to overpower those demonic forces. Whoop them. And declare us saved from that problem and just stay where he is but dispatch created agents to solve our problem for us. And we would call that salvation, and that's what we would mean by the word. But that's not our problem, and that's not the solution. The problem is personal. The solution is personal. Our root problem is sin and rebellion against God, and only God can save us. So the one who saves us is the Word who is God. And the result is personal reconciliation with God in person. And of course, while I'm using this word person, I mean it's also the personal presence of that God with us is the the nature of our salvation. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Not the word sent a creature to hang out with us, but he in person, the word who was with God and was God, dwelt among us. What child is this? The word of God become flesh personally. So he's powerful and personal and brings a powerful and personal salvation. So now let's look at final. Um, I would have gone with a P word here, but final. Spell it with a PH if you want. Anyway, something. (laughs) It matters that God our Savior is God because since he's God, the search is over. We aren't looking or waiting for another word, a next revelation. This is the one. The word that was in the beginning became flesh and dwelt among us. So we have in Christ a final revelation. If Jesus weren't the word, but just another word, then he wouldn't and couldn't be final. We'd be waiting for the next word. See the difference between next and final? If Jesus were just the next word from God, we'd be on the lookout for the next next. And then the next, next, and then the word after that. But in Jesus Christ, we have the word who was God. We've got all eternity to grow in our understanding and fellowship with this first and final word of God, of course, but we're not standing by for an update from the next word. 
This is why religions that claim to have the next word are always dead giveaways. They miss the finality of God's self-revelation in Christ. No Muhammad, no Joseph Smith, no prophet to be named at a later date, no nobody is the next word that outflanks or out-testifies or out-promises the first and final word that is our Savior. He's the Word. What's at stake here in the finality of Christ and His salvation is the nature of salvation. Is it real salvation? Only if He's really the Word. But the key application point about this salvation that I want to point out to you is the assurance of salvation. If Jesus is God the Word, He's competent to save powerfully, personally, and finally. What follows from that is confident assurance. You can know you are reconciled to God by believing Jesus, trusting in Him, counting on Him. Every day brings discouragement and distraction that can weaken your assurance that God's got you. But in Christ, our salvation is already at the highest court of appeal, and there's no need to constantly relitigate it in your heart. Put salvation in His hands, and He'll put assurance in your heart. That follows from the finality of our Savior and His salvation. So only God can save us. And that's why when we say the Word became flesh, it's got to be really the Word who became flesh. If Jesus isn't really God, we're not saved. But we're also not saved, and this is point two, if He's not really, truly, fully human. What child is this? A real human child. We start from above. He is the Word of God, but the gospel comes all the way down. He became flesh. Flesh, in this verse, doesn't just mean the physical body, but full humanity. The incarnate Word has everything it takes to be human, from the mind and emotions and all that invisible stuff that humans have that makes us human, to the physical body that is also essentially human. When it says the Word became flesh, it doesn't mean He became just a body, but that He became human all the way down to and including the human body in all its goodness and awkwardness. He even took on the good and awkward human reality of having a family. If nothing else jumps out at you from traditional Christmas celebrations, the manger makes sure that the birth of Jesus does. Imagine all the other ways God might have sent His Son to be among us, and the uh, manger throne song that we sang kind of picks up on some of that, right? We might imagine Jesus just descending from the clouds, fully grown, 33 years old, fully human, ready to do the work of teaching us about God and dying for our sins. You could imagine him being human in that sense, right? Um, but if you asked him, who's your family, he'd say, I'm human, but not like human human. I descended from the sky, and I have no relatives. I'm humanity version two. Uh, we'd have to admit that he's some kind of human. Uh, we could, it'd be hard to come up with a test that he couldn't pass for being human, but the family thing would be just a little too weird, right? No relatives. That's a different kind of human from any other human we've ever met. An absolutely familyless human being? Is that truly fully human? Here's the thing about the virgin birth. The word incarnate is born of Mary, so he is in a family. Now, it's a virginal conception and birth, so Joseph is excluded, and that definitely marks Jesus as unique and different in a miraculous way. But he's not absolutely different. He's born. He doesn't descend full-grown from the sky, but is born from a mother and raised in a family. And because he's in some family, that really makes him 
one of us. It really marks him as being part of the human family. Do you see how big and significant his birth is for identifying him as one of us? Since he's Mary's baby boy, he's also the son of David and also a son of Adam. He's one of us. He's in this human family. If he had descended from heaven unborn, he would have been sort of um, part of the human class or category, but not part of the human family. He wouldn't have been organically connected to this project we've got going on and are making a big mess of. Yeah. Now, this is good news uh, for lots of reasons. Uh, the Word incarnate is in the business of saving everything that is human, so he took on everything that is human. There's no part of what it means to be human that he didn't take on in order to save. Some other reasons this is uh, good news. It means God saves by making salvation an inside job, uh, not doing it from a distance, saving humanity from within the human project, not launching salvation at us over the ramparts of heaven, but delivering it all the way here. Also, it means that God is committed to the human project. This is a big deal. He's not starting over. Um, if I started something and it sort of self-destructed and all went bad, I would start over. I would say, forget about that. Scrub it off my resume. Never happened. Didn't try. Don't talk about it anymore. Let's do this project instead. Let's just change the subject. But no, God's not starting over or abandoning the project. He's fixing it. He's committed to deep repair. Humans are so messed up by sin that it must have been attractive to consider just calling it all a loss and starting a new one. But no, the real word became real flesh, and that means God is committed to salvaging this project. Here's a weak analogy. If I mix up a batch of cookies and get the recipe wrong, I start over. I throw out the bad batch and start a new one. Let's say something like it calls for a cup of sugar and I put in a cup of some other white thing I found in the cabinet, like, I don't know, salt. Listen, I'm not salvaging that. I'm tossing it and starting over. But God somehow, this is where the analogy just gets worse and worse, somehow is committed to that same batch of cookies that messed up. And the incarnation means God is not starting over from scratch, but working whatever kind of Christmas kitchen miracle it takes to salvage that batch and make us the cookies we were supposed to be. All right? You can tell my illustration pretty quickly exceeded my competence to illustrate it, but... If you have ideas for saving a bad batch of cookies, let me know. That the Word became flesh means that the one who made us came to remake us because all things were created through Him. And so we get a strong reaffirmation of the goodness of creation and God's commitment to the project of creation, and in particular, human creation, uh, by God choosing to save through this human-affirming incarnation, joining the project and solving it from within. So what child is this? Two big answers, a divine child and also a human child. If you put points one and two together, um, you'll notice that the category of sonship emerges pretty closely. So it's not just God and man, but the son of God and the son of Mary. Um, not just human, but a human son. Not just God, but God the son. The word became flesh. The son of God became son of man. And that's why in John 1.18, it says, to those who believed in him, who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. His sonship, which is in the back of his divinity and of his humanity, his sonship, his being the natural son of God, opens the way for us to become naturalized sons of God or adopted sons. That's a big deal. The word became flesh and sonship is here among us. But how? How? 
This is where we turn the corner. The real word became real flesh, but now it's time to look at that third point, really became. And that means we are going to ask the how question. So I'm going to ask it, and I'm going to answer it, but I'm going to need your cooperation for this part of the sermon. I need you to join me on this and lower your standards, right? So I'm going to explain how the word became flesh, and as long as you've got your standards like way down here, you got to join me on this. You got to expect like I'm going to answer how, and you're going to say, I'm not expecting much from this, and I will satisfy your expectations. I will absolutely make this as plain, as long as, as, long as you've joined me on this. Really became. The word in John 1.14 is became, and it means it. The word became flesh. But here's the crucial thing. It doesn't mean become in just any possible way. When you apply this word become to God, it can't just mean exactly the same thing. It means every other time you use it. So we need to look at some things that it doesn't mean. First of all, here's what it doesn't mean. Notice this part of lowering your expectations. I told you I was going to explain how, and then I'm going to give you several important how it didn't happen, right? So hope you find that deeply satisfying because you, you promised you would. Okay. First of all, it doesn't mean that God the Word stopped being one thing and then morphed into being another thing. Now, that's how most becoming happens most of the time down here in creaturely reality. You stop being one thing and you go through a change or a series of changes, at the end of which you are no longer the thing you were, and instead you are this new thing. Um, I, am, I am acting out right before you the process of ceasing to be a young man and becoming an old man, right? How can I become old? Only by ceasing to be young. I've got to stop being what I was and instead become what I am and will be. Um, or if you paint your house, you know, it was white and now it's yellow. Um, it had to stop being white by you applying that contrast coating to it and turning it into a yellow house. If I want to see your white house, I can't anymore. You exchanged it for a yellow one. It stopped being what it was, and instead it became something else. But that is not how the Word became flesh. The Word didn't stop being the Word and instead turn into flesh. In other words, you didn't morph or transmogrify. I don't even know if transmogrify is a real word, but I'm using it to kind of... Um, get us away from having a common sense notion of become and think we can just apply that to how the Word became flesh. It doesn't say the Word stopped being the Word and turned into flesh. It doesn't say the Word transmogrified into flesh. It doesn't say that. It says became, and we have to learn from Christ what it means that the Word became flesh. God is immutable. His Word is immutable. So becoming doesn't mean morphing. What he, one of the church fathers said, what he was, he remained. What he was not, he took on. That's an unusual kind of becoming. Um, one of the things this means is that Jesus didn't um, uh, step down from the level of deity and instead turn into something that was not God. Remember, only God can save us. It doesn't, I didn't say only someone who used to be God but is working on a different era on his tour is now going to save us. He's got to still be God. And we get signs of this when Jesus says things like in John 10, 18, he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So in the flesh, as the sent one, as the incarnate one, Jesus is walking around saying and saying out loud, I have the authority to lay my life down and take it up again. Now, lots of people have authority to lay their life down, but if you've got someone who continues to have authority to go ahead and pick it back up again, 
where is that living? He did not pack that in a suitcase and leave it in heaven while he came down to earth with none of his stuff. He had to be fully God and fully man at the same time. While remaining God, he took on being human. This is good news because it means that Jesus is both God and man. If he morphed, it would mean he used to be God but stopped being God. May it never be. Do you see how salvation comes apart if becoming means morphing? We're already convinced that only God can save us and that the Savior must be truly human. We don't want to let go of either of those truths, and we can't let the word become mean that we sacrifice either of those truths we already established. So the word became flesh has to mean that the word continued to be word but took to himself flesh. The Son of God remained divine but took on humanity without ceasing to be divine. Now here's the second thing that the word became flesh doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the Son of God merged, mixed, or mingled himself into human nature. God is God, and humanity is humanity. Jesus is both, but he's not a mixture or mingling of the two of them. Now, since you've lowered your standards, I'm going to give you a, another illustration. Here's some Play-Doh. All right. So let's let the golden yellow be the divine nature. Everyone make that jump? Good. And the uh, blue here be the human nature. Uh, if I'm the incarnate son, I have both natures. Easy enough, right? Here's the temptation, though. It's tempting to say he has the divine nature. Mm, Play-Doh. And he has the human nature. And that in the incarnation, you might, I'm going to illustrate the wrong answer. So, like, don't, don't write this one down and say this is how it works. This is, this is, I'll stand over here. This is the bad one. Okay. Um, when the human nature and the divine nature come together, it is not a matter of them morphing or merging, mingling, mixing, commingling. What will happen, I, I tested this at home and it takes like 45 seconds, so I'm gonna like break into a vamp and entertain you. Um, what happens if you begin with the yellow and the blue, the divine and the human, but you morph and mingle them into each other? You end up eventually, as the clock runs out here, with, uh, what is that? It's green. Is yellow still in there? I mean, after a manner of speaking, but you kind of lost it in the mix, right? Notice that what we need for the Word to become flesh is for the Savior to be both Word and flesh, not fluid. <laughs> right? This is an anti-green sermon, okay? It's, it's, we need to preserve the yellow and the blue representing the divine and the human nature and not let them mingle into some third thing, which could then be a competent savior for all the green third things out there, but not for the human nature that we need to save. Also, I miss the divine nature. I kind of want it, but I can't have it back. There's no way of re-separating uh, it from that. You see, you see the problem? Now, that's one problem. I'm going to put this stuff back in the can because somehow I've got to sort it back out for the second service. And this is like, I need some volunteers. I might need to send up a deacon beacon here and get some help. Okay. That's one problem. Um, instead of getting salvation for Team Blue, you've got salvation for the non-existent Team Green because there's only one person on the entire team, and that's the God-man. That's a mess. But here's the real problem. Um, it all started when I held up a can of uh, yellow Play-Doh and said, this is the divine nature. That was, I wasn't struck by lightning for doing that, but it was so wrong. Like, for one thing, let's say that the blue Play-Doh is human nature, and then I hold up the yellow Play-Doh and say, this is the divine nature. How 
How big do you think the divine nature needs to be compared to the human nature? Right? You see the problem? So, like, look around you. Look at the tall ceilings in this room and how big this space is. I would have to fill this entire room with yellow Play-Doh and then mingle the blue Play-Doh into it. Do you think that would effectively turn the Play-Doh in this room green? It would still be pretty yellow, right? What you'd actually have is the total loss of the human nature into the infinite divine nature. If they mingle, the divine nature just eats up the human nature. It's gone. It's like if I go down to the ocean and throw a bottle of ink in it. It's kind of a dumb thing to do. But in terms of parts per billion, I have not significantly affected the color of the sea, right? The ink's in there, but not in a way that makes a difference. That's what would happen to our Savior's human nature if it mingled with the divine nature. And in fact, obviously, just to help us think, I talked about filling this room with Play-Doh, but this room is finite. It's big, but finite. I would have to take an infinite amount of Play-Doh and put one little can of human in it and expect that the human would still be there. That's a problem. So, become doesn't mean ceasing to be one thing and turning into another instead. Become doesn't mean word and flesh merge into some kind of, what did I call it, flirt or wesh or something. It doesn't do that. But also it doesn't mean that the Son of God sent out some sort of a remote control drone or an avatar and did this from a distance. He actually took up the instrument which is his own human nature. You see that? The eternal Son of God always being in fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, always having the one divine nature, took up, assumed, took into union with himself, the human nature, and used it as the instrument of our salvation. Now, that can sound impersonal, right? Um, but notice, I'm saying it's not a drone, it's not a distance. I, um, if I go to the beach and dig a hole, I could dig a hole with the instrument of a shovel, and uh, I'd be glad to have it to get more sand moved. Or I could dig a hole with the instrument of my hands, that is myself, right? The human nature of Christ is that kind of instrument. It's what the Son of God takes to himself, and it's him. Uh, if, you, if you come to the beach and break my shovel, I say, hey, you broke my shovel. If you break my hands, I have a whole different response because those are mine in a deeper sense, right? Hey, I was using that tool. That tool is me. How dare you? Um, that's the kind of intimacy that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, has with the instrument of the human nature that he takes up and in which he carries out our salvation. So, um, thank you for lowering your standards with me, as I think I was really clear on why, and it, it helps that we had earlier sermons on the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. I can invoke all of those and say, uh, had to be truly the Word, had to truly become flesh, and I even explained a little bit of how, mostly by explaining how not. Because there's still a mystery here, right? We're still eventually going to say, I cannot explain to you what it felt like for the Son of God to become incarnate and walk around experiencing human life as the eternal Son of God. I just, I don't have access to that information. It's not in the Bible, and it wasn't in any theology class I ever took except that one bad one, which I repudiated. Um, we just don't have that kind of information. And I know there's lots of questions that all of this raises. I can open a can of Play-Doh, but I'm trying not to open a can of worms, right? I'm trying to uh, illustrate what we can know with confidence about who our Savior is and what kind of salvation He carried out. Mostly it sounds like a lot of negatives. No morphing, no merging, no mingling, no drones, no remote control. But it's in service of one big yes. The Word became flesh. 
tidings of comfort and joy, the reality and truth of the incarnation. It leaves us with a paradox that this one is both divine and human, but paradox is good. And Christmas hymns, you probably noticed, are full of paradox. We rejoice in them. We sing them over and over. We set aside this entire season to say all kinds of mind-blowing things about the one who is moving the forces of the universe around through his omnipotent power is rocked in a cradle. He's the king even in the manger because he was always fully God and fully man in the incarnation. Uh, the paradox is good. We sing these paradoxes, and they are priming us to believe the amazing truth of the incarnation. So we spent this morning thinking about it, um, but our faith is for more than thinking about. Uh, the Christian faith is for living, for accepting and receiving. Now, that certainly involves the mind, but it involves more a total commitment of the person to the things that we believe. Trusting in Jesus means obeying Him getting our spiritual strength from Him directly. So we gather as Christians not only to be reminded of the truth, but to feed on the truth and to be strengthened by it. That's why as Christians we take the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. The Lord's Supper reminds us of His death for us. But it's not just a visual aid, the Play-Doh, that's a visual aid. The Lord's Supper, if it were a visual aid, we would hold it up and point to it and say, look, bread. Remember that Jesus died. Okay, you're dismissed. No, we obey him by taking and eating, taking and drinking. That is, we remember and participate. Communion acts out the fact that it's not enough to just know and acknowledge a truth in your mind, but you have to experience the truth personally by partaking of it. We don't just remind ourselves that he was born for us, lived for us, died for us. We act it out by obeying the ordinance that he commanded to his church. That ordinance is called the Lord's Supper, remembrance of him in the means of the bread and the cup. 